So this is our first show here together, Evan. And I got to say, I'm really excited to have you as a guest host, a co-host of the podcast. You, uh, I think you're a, a true thought leader and innovator. And you also are CEO of a successful tech company, which I think is pretty tough to accomplish in the oil and gas space. Uh, there's a lot of barriers to entry. And our first guest that we're going to interview together, David Forsberg, he's just an anomaly, I think, like yourself. He's out there pushing the front end of the technology wave into the oil and gas space. And I think just really insightful guy who's thought deeply about different types of investments and challenged the space. So I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to him as well. But I think for a moment, we just want to get to know you a little bit better. Can you, you know, tell us a little bit more about what you're looking forward to and working on this podcast together and, and what you think is going to be important here for us and working together? Right. So, you know, I view the podcast as kind of the intersection of upstream, midstream, you know, um, you know, all different sectors of, of the oil and gas industry, technology, um, and that's really where my interests lie is at the intersection of computer science and oil and gas. And um, as an entrepreneur, uh, you're always learning. You don't always have the answers to things. And so you work very hard to establish relationships with people with all, you know, all sorts of diverse backgrounds. Um, you know, I come from the upstream side of the business, um, having managed, you know, an independent, um, uh, you know, with operated wells, um, um, uh, with 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 a variety of assets, and uh, so I can speak very naturally to the folks that are consumers and and utilize a lot of technology. Uh, I also work with you know investment banks, private equity, venture capital. Um, you know, I've done some consulting in the past to help you know private equity uh, that may be coming in from outside to kind of understand the energy tech landscape. Uh, and I've also consulted for a lot of these oil and gas companies that are trying to really leverage uh, data and technology in order to drive value. And so for me, you know, I love meeting dynamic, smart, uh, good people. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I really value those relationships and building them over time. Uh, I enjoy the conversations. I always walk away having learned something. I'm naturally very curious. And so. Uh, I have lots of questions, both personal and, 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 you know, professional, and, uh, it would be a joy, um, to continue, you know, uh, co-hosting with you and, uh, and interviewing, you know, uh, you know, thought leaders in the space. Yeah, I agree completely. I have had a really great experience in working, collaborating with you so far. You've just been a catalyst for a lot of ideas and also given me some ways of looking at the podcast quite differently than I think the original approach. And that's really about having human conversations with these thought leaders, you know, not just framing it up purely in some interviewee, interviewer type of scenario, but trying to get personal and know these people who have revolutionized the space or are revolutionizing the oil and gas space and finding inspiration from their journey and their path and giving our listeners something that they want to listen to that's interesting and exciting and insightful and, and gives you some of those aha moments. 
so we uh, we shot the podcast um, a few a few days back, and uh, for you, what, what was some of the biggest takeaways or some really interesting moments for you to te- <laughs> teaser up? I guess the the conversation that that we had with David. Yeah, I think it was super encouraging to hear that the deal flow in energy tech was so uh, robust. Um, that's something I've always been concerned about in this space. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to, to, to venture capitalists uh, outside of, you know, these oil and gas cities like Denver, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Houston. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of appetite, I think, frankly, because the valuations are significantly lower because um, these are industries uh, in this part of the country, heavy industry that spends a lot of money. Um, and, uh, and frankly, there's, there's a lot of need for technology to disrupt, you know, industry like oil and gas. Yet I, you know, I had my doubts that, um, that, uh, the deal flow would be there to really support a meaningful fund in this part of the country. Uh, and I was really encouraged to hear from him that, that they have a robust pipeline and are really excited about what's coming online. I also thought it was super interesting that as he talked about, you know, what we're experiencing in the macro with a downturn, it's a, there's a lot of creative destruction as a result. You see a lot of uh, employees that uh, whether, you know, they're, they're being fired or, or um, you know, the opportunity is no longer there and they decide to go off and do something else. And you're seeing a lot of startups created as a result. Somebody has an idea for a particular problem that they want to solve and use technology to do so. And, um, and as a result, that, that, that deal flow is increasing. So that was one big takeaway for me. Um, you know, I was less surprised to hear that in, in David's view, the, the macro needed technology now more than ever. Uh, it makes sense given the fact that GNA is getting squeezed. Uh, companies have to do a lot more with less. Uh, there's still a lot of inefficiencies in the market. So that was less surprising to me, but but it's always good to hear uh, uh, a different perspective on where those opportunities exist. Yeah, and I, I agree completely. Like this is a big moment, a shifting moment. And I've heard it from some really successful people that I'm fortunate to be able to talk to in my life. I mean, these this is, you know, one of those times when wealth is made. Uh, also, a lot of people you know, can, can lose, lose the house. Um, and, and it's, you've got that weird dichotomy of things, but in being on the phone, you know, on a daily basis, uh, um, for, from, for my work, my day-to-day works, it's, you know, you come across people that, that have that spark and fire in their eye to do something new and to push themselves and to test their boundaries and their comfort zone and, uh, you, you know, see what they're made of. And I think, for me, I think having you on the show and getting you on and, and being a co-host here uh, brings, I think, uh, that element to the table of someone who's gone through that experience and gone through that process and, and been successful while still working on the business. I mean, you're, the things you're doing right now are really interesting, and I'm looking forward to having more dialogue with you around that, but it sounds like you're really stepping up your game too and, and challenging the way you've looked at your business and uh, thinking about new opportunities uh, given, given the environment. Yeah, absolutely. You have to, you always have to be adapting and, and, and it's really just survival is, is continuing to move. 
Um, I think one more thing that I'd like to, you know, capture here real quick is uh, what, what do you think we can do together in working on the show to, to make it better and make it different? I think from, it seems like this is like that window of time where everybody is, is creating their own podcast. And I, I'm wondering for you, you know, what's a, what's going to make us different? What's going to be our big distinguishing factor from, from everybody else that's out there? Yeah. I mean, when I think of, uh, um, communication in general, for me, there are a couple elements that, that I find really appealing. The first and foremost is, is, uh, just really connecting with your audience. Um, and I think you do that by, uh, by being vulnerable, um, and just being really authentic. Um, I think people connect with that. And so, um, when you're willing to kind of explore things that may be a little uncomfortable, um, uh, you know, I, I think people tend to tune in because we all tend to identify with struggle um, or with success. Um, you know, there are emotions, positive emotions, negative emotions that, that are associated with that. And, and we all kind of connect with that. Um, we're human. I think uh, secondly, uh, beyond the authenticity, I think offering an audience something that, you know, where there's valuable content, where uh, I can listen in and having learned something uh, from the discussion or uh, to change my thinking or challenge my thinking or validate my thinking, I think uh, the content has to be um, uh, informative. And then lastly, uh, entertaining. I mean, um, uh, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm not too old to play pranks, even on podcasts. And so, um, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, whatever we can do to, to make the discussion fun, um, I think people will appreciate. And so that's what I aim to do. Yeah, I'm all about that. When we started this out, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm a big, heavy reader. I uh, try to get my earbuds in as much as possible and put a book on tape. I don't know if that's still technically reading or not, but uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> two times, three times speed. So I'm, I'm. I, I think I can actually listen now faster than I, my eyes can go on a page. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, I think it was really important. And I think for my, my team members over here too, the reason we created Oil Intel was to be a knowledge base. You know, I think there's a lot of really great minds out there who just don't have the time or the platform to get out there and, and share their wisdom. And I've noticed that people are really willing to do that, which is... Um, it's not surprising, but I think it's um, I think it's encouraging, and I think it, it presents a lot of opportunity for for us to learn from from those who have lived um, and have the experience to look back on and, and give us some wisdom on on their life and their their journey, uh, both professionally and personally. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, I think you know it's funny you know. Uh, I'm, I'm in technology based out of Oklahoma city and there are, there are a couple marketed blogs that talk a little bit about technology in this part of the country. Uh, but for the most part, you know, technology, but businesses, uh, in, in this part of the country don't, don't reach Inc or, um, some of the, uh, the startup magazines. But if you step back and think about it, I mean, you know, since the 1900s, you know, this part of the country has had serial entrepreneurs spin up, you know, oil and gas companies of all different sorts, you know, over and over and over again. And there are a lot of there are a lot of great stories and lessons learned there that that uh, I'm looking forward to exploring. 
Yeah, me too. It's honestly an honor to have you come on and co-host with me. So thank you. David, we're uh, grateful to have you on the show today and uh, really excited to get to sit down and talk with you. I'm excited to be here. Can you give us a kickoff here with a little bit of background uh, and perspective on what you're currently working on? Sure. My general background is in developing and and, uh, working with groups that uh, developed execution algorithms for institutional order flow in U.S. equity markets, as well as algorithms that make buy-sell decisions uh, for uh, U.S. equity markets. Um, and then uh, a single family office related to a, a well-known EMP family. And during that time, I, I saw an opportunity where the uh, trend of automation that uh, I experienced in financial markets was coming to the EMP space and uh, an opportunity for the uh, EMP and broader energy sector to adopt digital and automated solutions was uh, uh, coming down the pipeline. And I think that we are, are quite a bit further along now than we were when I first thought of this thesis. And so we have launched a, a venture fund focused on investments in companies um, that lead to a more digital and automated energy industry. And, and that's where we're focused. Uh, so Evan, do you you want to take the the reins here a little bit and give us some direction for the conversation? Yeah, I've got a couple topics I'd like to explore. You know, David, I've I've followed you for some time and 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 have a tremendous amount of respect for your thoughts on the space. You know, um, recently, you know, I, I think you commented on some things related to Google kind of bowing out of the space. Um, you know, you describe yourself as environmentalist. You know, I you know <laughs> quoting Thoreau. And um, I, I, incidentally, I, I, I consider myself a John Muir environmentalist as well. And so, um, you know, how do you reconcile your views on environmentalism and, and energy and oil and gas in general? Yeah, great question. Um, uh, and something that I feel passionately about, I think. Um, I, I think that when uh, looking at the world and being more practical, you have to realize there's the world as it is and the world as we want it to be. Um, and so... Uh, the world as I maybe want it to be is is not a reality. And um, so we, we have huge trillions of dollars of infrastructure uh, related to the extraction, processing, and use of hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons influence everything around our lives. I mean, if you look around the room you're in right now, there, there everything is, is hydrocarbon related. And uh, even if you take out the transportation component, and so I think to, to have a, a view that we're just suddenly going to go to a less energy dense energy source and get rid of all hydrocarbons, I, I think that's somewhat of a naive worldview. And so instead of taking it to that extreme, which is not a reality, um, you need to work within the industry that exists and help it become more efficient, uh, cleaner, operating and uh, a better industry for all of us. So I, I think that's the, the stage that we're at instead of simply wanting to ride it right on the back of a unicorn. Right. No, pragmatically, I, I kind of draw the same conclusions in that I don't see us not becoming a carbon-based economy anytime soon, given the limitations of, of, of science and, 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 and what I see in the renewable space. Um, so, 
along that thread, you know, interestingly enough, you know, if you look at some of the employment agreements of some of the top executives at, you know, the largest E&P companies, they have, as part of their employment agreements, they have incentives to promote things around ESG. But when you look at the industry and, and how it talks about data and technology, you know, every company that, that, that I've, you know, been following um, will, ha- will pay, they seem to pay a lot of lip service to their efforts around embracing and adopting technology and data in the same way that you see it in fintech where, you know, you're familiar with given your background. Yet you don't see incentives tied to those initiatives. You don't see the same level of commitment because, you know, it's going to either way, whether you're promoting ESG or data and technology, you're talking about culture change and behavioral change. And it takes a significant amount of effort to drive that change, which is why they tie those initiatives to um, their employment contracts. Um, How do you think about adoption of technology and data within the industry? And do you see that as an obstacle for companies like myself, like, like Osberg or any of the companies that you'd be looking at investing in. Yeah, I think there's an implicit linkage to technology adoption, oftentimes via uh, long-term stock incentive, because I believe, as, as I believe many people do, uh, that those companies that begin to adopt technology and move forward uh, in terms of gaining efficiency and doing more with less will, will in the end, compound capital much faster. Now, they can do multiple things from a corporate finance perspective with that capital that they compound. They can give it back to shareholders through buybacks or, or unfortunately, dividends, um, or they can reinvest that uh, as long as their uh, capital uh, rates of compounding are still higher. And so I, I think that executive compensation is astutely aware of technology um, and the hurdles to adoption are less uh, in the compensation realm or even the public statements of compensation and more in the um, tangentially linked uh, directly to that compensation. And I'm, I'm happy to talk about ESG mandates as well if, if, if we want to go down that route. Oh, no, I was just using it as a bridge. And so, and so where do you think technology can really help the bottom line then if that's how it drives adoption? Yeah, um, I, I think the the fact is is that headcounts are declining in oil and gas for a couple of reasons. The first is that there's just a generational shift, and um, the current economic situation justifies uh, removal of of a percentage of headcount. And I don't think that uh, those jobs or, or those desks are going to be coming back. I think technology uh, will be used to replace. A number of people, and it, it seems like it's it's a negative thing to to many in the that have the desk or or sat at the desk previously. But the reality is, the industry can do a lot more with a lower headcount. The solution to operation uh, struggles uh, in the industry, broadly speaking, was oh, we'll just hire another person instead of analyzing the process that was u- that's being used and maybe refining that process or searching for new technologies that can improve that process. This just take, um, I mean, we, we can go over land docks if you'd like, but let's this, this pick on like geologists or reservoir engineers. Um, a vast majority of their time is spent cleaning data, processing data, handling data. And from one account that I 
looked at the other day, there's an annual savings of over $2 billion just in project type planning um, where it's data heavy and processing data heavy. When you're paying someone, say, $200 an hour uh, or more, that, that, that savings is very, very real. And so to upskill that workforce and free up their time to focus on tasks that are of higher value to the company. I think there's a lot of um, uh, ability to improve efficiency there. Um, in, in your sp- specific case, uh, searching land documents or, or unstructured documents, they don't even have to be land documents. I, I think there's a, a, a an unfortunate amount of time is wasted there in the uh, energy sector, the EMP sector in particular has delayed an investment there in terms of process and technology, not necessarily negatively. Um, They have been very focused on engineering tech over the last 20 years, which is where they should have been. And now it's time to pay off that that debt that's been incurred, that technology and process debt, and refocus on improving operations. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you look at, I, I often take a look at, you know, new PE back startups because it's an opportunity to kind of reset culture. It's an opportunity to kind of, to kind of build from scratch. And I I find it interesting that when you look at the executive teams of a lot of the portfolio companies that are funded by, you know, the, the usual suspects within energy PE, um, they tend to lack any kind of representation of technology at the executive level. Yep. It, it's almost as though IT is an afterthought that after we get the business set up, we'll start thinking about IT and the tools and the technologies we'll utilize and the infrastructure that we'll invest in. And I wonder if that's about culture or if that's about just the, the, the management fee structure and that they have limited dollars based off the capital they've raised to use towards technology and they can't really invest in technology up front, that it has to be an afterthought. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the biggest reason that you see executive teams, backed by private equity uh, players, they all look very similar, is because investors, which is what these private equity people are, uh, rarely make get fired for making conventional herd decision making, and mm-hmm. um, so so hiring a team that looks like everybody else or that has thirty years of experience doesn't get you fired. It may not give you uh, outsized returns or a uniqueness in the space, but uh, that's why they do it, in my opinion. Um, and I think the data for investment uh, personnel supports that across other asset classes. The I, I do think that there is an opportunity for a private equity firm that is uh, forward thinking and, and is willing to dare to be great for funding firms that are tech focused. And I, I think that opportunity will sudden, will evolve. And I think one of the largest EMP companies may yet to be founded. And it'll be a technology-focused company that happens to produce hydrocarbons. Yeah, I love that idea. And I think you both address the question here then. You know, when you're looking at where to bring your technologies into the space, um, are you pretty much skipping the organization and going straight to the equity providers of those organizations? Um, to to infiltrate the the company with technologies is that really the entry point for you? And uh, how much also how much energy are you putting in? Uh, I guess researching these new ENP companies that are are emerging um, out of the space and looking at them as uh, an opportunity to bring your technology in. 
Evan, that might be better suited to you, but I'm, I'm happy to address it. Yeah. So I, I would say that, that, you know, in talking with other founders in the space and, and, and thinking back on our experiences, it's generally difficult. We found it pretty difficult to sell directly to the private equity sponsor. They, the response that we've received, and I think other founders have received similar responses is that they generally like their management teams to pick their technologies. Um, and so um, we haven't had much success using private equity as a distribution channel. It's a, it's an obvious win if you can, but, but it's been, we've had limited success with it. Um, I would say that, that in evaluating the new startups, there are a couple, uh, you know, PE backed companies. I can think of, you know, Reza, for example, there in Denver um, is very forward thinking in terms of how they're utilizing technology in order to um, execute, you know, similar functions, but in a, in a completely different way. And, you know, what's interesting about a company like that is I think it's a really great story for a private equity sponsor to be able to tell their LPs that we're on the forefront of where this industry is and we're backing companies that are utilizing technology in ways that they haven't been used in private markets before. And I think that that is a, a really compelling story for our industry. Um, you know, I think, you know, we, we were talking about a mineral fund that, you know, a small mineral fund that, that had self-funded, you know, a $10 million deal and, and, you know, had an ROIC of, of two to one and, um, you know, didn't utilize really, you know, try to utilize some technology, but, but, but not a ton, uh, to do so. And, you know, there, you know, when you talk to groups like that, I mean, I, I, I am empathetic to the fact that, you know, their strategy worked. It worked without utilizing technology, and we see that a lot. But that's not necessarily an argument, at least for me, to not be looking at how to do things differently utilizing technology because you could accelerate capital faster by utilizing technology. You could drive higher ROIC by utilizing technology. It's just there are there are starting. I'm starting to see private equity-backed companies emerge that are thinking more carefully about how to utilize data and technology. I don't see it as being commonplace today. So Evan, how much more, or sorry, David, how much more discipline do you have to apply when you're evaluating uh, startups uh, compared to maybe other uh, companies in other sectors or spaces? Is there an extra level of discipline that you have to apply um, when you're looking at something in front of you, an investment opportunity in front of you? Well, I don't know that I have to use more or less. I think it comes down to uh, demand for the product being offered. And, and I think all investors need to uh, be disciplined in their analysis of that. Um, this, the CFA Institute recently published something on the big market delusion uh, that has infiltrated uh, venture in particular. And it's, I, I posted it on LinkedIn, but uh, I, I call it the, the error of Pascal's uh, wager um, where uh, you justify just about anything because you can see the size of the market being so big. So I think it comes down to being disciplined in the analysis of what the demand is, and that changes the valuation of companies. Um, and I think we're at the beginning stages of demand picking up for these technologies as the uh, the push away for technology uh, ha is starting to dissipate. And, and uh, for a number of reasons, companies are pulling for these technology solutions. And uh, many of these solutions 
it's not so much that they can operate efficiency at, at, at low levels of, of operation, which they do, but it's about being able to scale a company uh, far faster and far greater. Uh, it's, it's providing that, that, hu- that leverage to the human capital that exists within the company in order to grow quickly and, uh, uh, at, and to a size that is uh, material. So, David, I've got a question for you in regards to just some of the themes that you're seeing in in venture capital as it relates to energy. You know, you you saw Andreessen Horowitz come into the space in a big way, um, which which was really eye catching for me. Um, At the same time, you see some of our traditional PE back companies, you know, moving away from energy. Right. And so what what are you seeing in the space? What are your what is your thought in terms of. You know, is venture capital coming towards the industry or moving away? If so, why? And what are some of the other trends that you're seeing, you know, with respect to venture and, and energy tech? I, I think there are large funds in venture and it is difficult to deploy the capital efficiently in the traditional venture silos and ge- geographies. And I think as a result of that, Venture is starting to look outside of specific geographies uh, and outside of traditional silos. Um, they are sticking their toe in the water into energy tech, as you mentioned, especially when those companies are easy for them to understand. I, I think Silicon Valley and venture capital has a traditional bias uh, against the traditional energy sector, and that bias uh, leads them to shy away from it. They also, another reason why they tend to shy away from it is because it it is an industry that requires some level of experience and expertise in order to analyze the application of the technologies. So you combine those two forces and it's it's what's kept venture capital away for a a number of years. And I I think that will shift a little bit. You're starting to see uh, funds that were created uh, five years ago, for specifically to target this space, are are raising much larger funds uh, at, prior to the pandemic. But uh, it still is a relatively small amount of capital chasing these deals. When you consider the size and scale on a global level of the energy sector, the the energy sector is the the largest global capex spend of all sectors and and it's the biggest digital laggard of all sectors and it's one of the most data intensity sectors so so to me those combinations mean that there's a beautiful opportunity and plenty of room for growth for capital to uh, come in um, the private equity shops ha- are, are the, the, the game, name of the game was uh, fairly similar across private equity shops. And so they are now trying to figure out how their business model needs to adapt to the new environment where give teams capital, uh, prove up a, res- uh, uh, a a play and flip it to somebody else who's going to develop it. Um, they're, they a year ago began shifting. So I think their capital will come back into the energy sector um, uh, once the, some things shake out and they figure out where they sit. Um, but it, it's not going to come into specifically the energy technology space because venture is a lower capital um, uh, user. So from a business side of things, uh, you're not deploying tens of billions of dollars into venture or energy technology. Um, I think you will start to see, or I think there's an opportunity uh, in the next few years for private equity to come in and start rolling up 
uh, energy technology companies. And I think you've seen it with the firm formerly known as Drilling Info uh, and what they've been doing over the last 18 months uh, in their uh, aggressive acquisition spree. So I, I think there is a strategy there to, to do this. Agreed. And, and, and is there a particular theme that, that you're exploring? Are you looking at early stage seed, hardware versus software, data? Um, are, are there specific, are you, are you, would you describe yourself more as a generalist? Uh, are you early stage, late stage? What is it that you're looking for specifically? Yeah, I think the market right now allows predominantly for what I'll call first institutional capital or early institutional capital. It's it's hard to get lost in that alphabet soup of series A, B, and C, but I would call it series A plus, somewhere in that category. Um, capital use is mainly for growth, um, less for product development, and we like to see revenues and other things. I, I think that's where the opportunity is, and, and I think that's where the opportunity uh, often is in venture, uh, although in the last 10 years, uh, venture has migrated to a much later stage, which would, would have been early IPO stage uh, as a macro category. Um, so that's where I like, I think the opportunity uh, uh, sits right now. As far as the type of technology, I think uh, energy technology has a bifurcation. And the first one is at what I'll call engineering tech, things that are, are heavy assets, sliding sleeves, downhole, um, uh, water filtration, uh, piping, that kind of thing. And that is, in my opinion, better suited to what are the corporate venture groups because they can do uh, tests to prove out the technology on their own assets. And they have far greater pools of capital to really deploy those uh, types of technology. I sit on the other side, which is where uh, not only my expertise and background is, but where I think the opportunity for, for the largest returns on capital, which is more of the digital side, the asset light, um, things that lead to a more digital and automated industry. And, and what people forget, uh, and, and executives, coming back to something you, you mentioned earlier, uh, people do a lot of lip service to machine learning and AI without, in my opinion, really understanding what those terms mean. and uh, what it takes to get to that stage of the technology. And so you really have to focus on building that base, that, that, that foundation for the industry, which is all technology that then allows you to do machine learning and, and weaker forms of what I'll call AI. Um, so I, I like anything that, that builds that house. Yep. Agreed. I like it too. And then, um, you know, I, I'm out of Oklahoma city and um, I've often felt like, you know, Places like Oklahoma City, you know, the tall grass prairie where you've got heavy industry, you know, oil and gas, airline maintenance, um, agriculture, you know, industries that that I, I feel like there's still a lot of opportunity to, you know, deploy, you know, capital and technology into. Um, but I've seen a lot of funds try to get, you know, created in order to invest in that space. And where I feel like those funds have struggled is in deal flow. What are you seeing in terms of deal flow um, in the energy tech vertical? Yeah, so just numerically, I think we've seen two waves, and we'll see another one coming here shortly. Wave one uh, was after uh, 2014 when crude oil sold off aggressively, and into 2015, you saw a number of people that were highly skilled and focused on the energy sector, and they had 
basically two choices, go work at Starbucks or start a company. And so you had a number of startups that got founded. They knew a bunch of pain points that existed in the industry, things that annoyed them and pissed them off when they worked in the industry. And so they, they founded a number of companies and there was just a, a great amount of flow. We've seen numerically some of that fall off a little bit, but I think the quality has uh, on average increased. And um, so the, the deal flow is still very robust. I also think that here shortly um, for two reasons. The first is uh, that we'll see additional, another wave of good good deals coming or, or good companies being founded. Um, the first is because of the recent sell-off uh, and the layoffs. Those people are going to uh, echo what happened in 2015. And the second is that there is a slightly, the, the generational shift that is called the great crew change in the industry has already started to occur. And many of those people uh, are now in their late 30s, early 40s, which is the great opportunity uh, demographically to start companies. And so I think we'll see some, some really interesting companies be founded here in the next uh, three, in the next one to three years. So the, the opportunity, I think, is huge um, for deal flow. And, and we went through... Uh, in, in the last few years, we we average probably a hundred deal, hundred companies that we look at uh, every year or more. So it's it's really a robust pipeline. How many of those are sorry? Uh, how many of those are led by uh, leaders like Evan, non-technical founders um, who understand the space inside and out, but uh, don't have the technical background to build it out themselves? Is that pretty common from well, the type of teams that are coming across your desk? Let's be clear. I mean, there's no leader like Evan. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but thanks. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll agree there as well. I, I, think, I think a chunk of them are technical. I think it's hard to found a technical company without having some technical background or a founder that has some technical background just because of cost to build out technical products. Um, that being said, I, I think... Um, it, there is an over-focus from, from investors um, in, in terms of predicting success or funding companies that have purely technical background people. I, I think um, it's rare to find someone that is both a uh, empathetic quality leader um, and quality decision maker and builder of a company who is also technical. That those two skills are, are are rarely overlap, and it's not because they can't develop them. It's just because you're in this world. You get so focused on what your lane is, and even if you deviate slightly and gather other things, which I think you should, other skills, you're still very focused on a technical expertise um, versus uh, other expertise. So I, I appreciate uh, non-technical founders as well. I think it's probably 30, 40 percent. So Evan, can you tell us about, you know, what you went through? Because I think you're a great success story and somebody that can model for others who, you know, do have ideas in the space of, of where there are holes and pitfalls that can be filled in with technology, but might be too scared with the technical challenge. Um, can, can you talk about that briefly for them and, and give them some insights into, you know, what they might want to look at to, to get them moving forward on their ideas? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I would say first and foremost, you know, I, I lit a lot of capital on fire, you know, just trying to navigate um, the path forward to build something as a non-technical founder. I had a co-founder that was, it's, it would be a gross exaggeration to call him technical. We built 
some initial prototypes of the vision in Microsoft Access and Basic. Um, but they got the job done at least in terms of communicating the vision to prospective investors, which enabled us to then start finding engineers to actually build um, an MVP and, and bring something to market. I, I would say that any non-technical founder that doesn't have a, a co-founder or a strong team leader that has some uh, team lead level experience, uh, you know, uh, you know, not so far as a, a chief architect or a CTO, but, but somebody that might be a full stack developer, just to kind of depending on what you're trying to do, um, you're definitely going to need somebody early on on the team that, that is able to bring the vision to market. Um, you know, so having some product development skills, having some engineering skills uh, is as critical. Um, you're not going to be able to get something off the ground without them. Um, but, uh, you know, but that also, it also just kind of depends on what kind of milestones you're shooting for. You know, you're not going to get in front of an investor like David that's looking to invest at a little later stage, um, you know, uh, if you're a non-technical founder with an idea, but you might get to a MVP where you can prove out that there is product market fit, where there's demand and get to the next level uh, before you get to a David. And so, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, my first advice to a non-technical founder would be um, make friends with a lot of engineers. Um, uh, you know, you're going to need them. Uh, the, you know, they're obviously a core aspect to any technology business. Um, um, you know, the other thing is, is, is that, you know, I think a lot of people are intimidated of learning, you know, rudimentary programming skills. They think, you know, when I talk to um, folks that want to bring STEM programs into education, around coding, um, you know, I feel like there is this, uh, there's this misconception that the coding is, is for people that are, are mathematically inclined or have some sort of physics background. And, you know, coding is just a foreign language. It's actually easier than most romance languages because it's just ones and zeros. There's not one word that, that may mean multiple things in different contexts. And so picking up some rudimentary programming skills in R or, or, or you know, Postgres or, or some sort of rudimentary programming skills, Python, helps you communicate with engineers. It helps you take this vision that you have and communicate to an engineer so that you can effectively get something built. I, there's a big gap. You see a lot of energy companies that are trying to tackle this problem today They'll take a subject matter expert, whether it be in any discipline, land, engineering, geology, and they'll pair them with an engineer. And they think that that will help solve the problem in terms of the communication of what needs to get built and the execution of actually getting it built. And they're, I think they're underestimating the communication gap. The, the engineer cannot anticipate what needs to be built. There's a lot of, there's a lot that's not said or stated. And the subject matter expert can envision what's possible because they don't have any kind of background in, in, in technology. So by picking up some of those rudimentary programming skills, whether it's R, Python, something very simple, you're able, you're much closer to bridging that gap. You're much, you're much closer to, to taking your vision and being able to communicate it to a technical co-founder or a technical lead. And you're much likely you're going to have a much more success in, in getting an MVP built that way. 
So when both of you are, it sounds like both of you are pretty heavy in the data side and, and less on the equipment side. And with that, uh, is there a big gap right now between technologies that work for geologists and engineers and, you know, the things that they're really comfortable with versus everything else? Is that too too broad or too simple of a question? Yeah, I mean, you I, know, I think it's a good question. It's It's one that I think a lot about. You know, as David mentioned, you know, this is a very capital intensive business. I think the last time I checked upstream, you know, average 200, 300 billion a year in CapEx. I don't know what that's looking like now, but, but, um, you know, it's a very capital intensive business. And, and, and again, last time I checked about 50 of that is around drilling and completing wells. And, you know, when you look at technology and, and specifically around data, you know, it's, it's not surprising that you see a lot of data analytics, a lot of, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of production optimization, completion design, you know, there's a lot of technology around the drill bit because that's where a lot of the CapEx is. But when you look at the broader landscape of upstream oil and gas, land accounting, I mean, all the other departments, um, in, in my view, it's, it's pretty barbaric when it comes to utilizing technology. David, do you have a view? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think it's shockingly, uh, Barbaric, I guess. Yeah. Because when I think of technology, data technology, I think of drilling info and IHS. And those are just data points that an engineer can access a lot more information a lot more quickly to run their metrics. But I don't see it. I see a lot of really good entry points, right? When I'm looking at it from the perspective of a landman, when I put my landman hat on and my uh, you know, working interest, mineral interest, prospecting hat on. I see a lot of things intrinsically embedded in that data, but that's not how the product's presented to me. Um, when I'm looking at the product directly as a user, inter user interface and all those other things, to me, that's just, you know, something that a geologist and engineer, it's meant for a geologist and engineer. And I think it, it, for me, it's like uh, I'm missing out on a big opportunity through that data because of that barrier to access. But at the same time, like, I don't know if I'm, you know, the market. And if, if I'm the one that, if there's enough of me out there to, to make it a viable product. Well, the answer is there is enough of you out there and the data is there. It's just not presented to you in an effective way. So uh, that, that, that's an opportunity that I think multiple people are trying to, to take advantage of. But uh, yeah, I think there's a big opportunity for, for, for what you just said. David, I've, 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 forgive me. I'd, I'd like to ask you a Barbara Walters question. Um, so, so it's okay if you cry, yeah. but, um, um, you know, you, as a founder, uh, of an energy tech company, you, you read articles about venture capitalists and there was this debate about smart money, uh, that was started probably at least 10 years ago. And uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what you view as the role of a Series A plus investor, and and what value you bring to an organization. Why should you know? Why would they want to take your money? To what extent do you feel like you know your role you know is in in helping these companies get to the next stage? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um... So, so the value that I bring or, or to a, to a startup, um, one, I think I will say this, and, and I said it before and, and people don't like that I say it, but I think venture capitalists overestimate the value they bring to companies. Okay. And Agreed. 
And they, and I think founders who are interacting with venture capitalists, especially for the first time, uh, have higher expectations for what venture capitalists are going to bring. Okay. And so I, I, I really want to be clear about that as an investor, you are highly, highly incentivized to make sure that your investments succeed. (laughs) So I will do anything that I can to help you succeed. I think most of that for me comes from a couple of things. It's being able to help you work through problems and be a, um, a, a, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this, but like a business therapist, right? Or a, a problem solver. Maybe they're different, um, but, but both roles are important because being a founder is a uh, a lonely experience, I, I, I would imagine. Um, and so uh, being able to have that kind of support network that is not the people that you interact with on a day-to-day basis who are incentivized uh, uh, in the same way that you are. So I, I think that's one value. The other is making introductions wherever possible. Although the reality is, is that if you're looking at Shell, that's that's a huge corporation. I mean, they have more outlets than McDonald's and sell more coffee than Starbucks. If you expect me to know the guy who's going to make the decision to buy your product, the probability of that is low. Um, and I think part of it is lending. Uh, another advantage is lending credibility. Um, um, and then uh, providing capital, obviously, for your growth and helping you uh, manage capital. If you if you look at great executives, at once they get to bigger companies, it really comes down to the allocation of a scarce resource, which is capital. And so, I think helping there and helping make those decisions is is important. So, uh, David, how do you balance the oversight required to make sure your money is performing? Uh, for you with the the creativity of the team uh, and not getting so involved to where you start stifling their performance and growth. As, as yeah. My, my philosophy is this. If I'm investing with you, I'm investing in the team and I'm investing in the company and the product, but I'm not here to run your company. That, that, that at the end of the day, I have put, I have put money on the horse and, and we're, we're going, we're, you're, you're going to have to go. Um, I, I am not here to do that. If, if for some reason a venture capital capitalist has to get involved in the company and make more decisions, call it beyond the uh, macro board level type discussions, that, that is a negative. Um, that, that's not a positive. Um, so especially for me, I, I don't, I have, I maybe have 20 companies that I'm trying to interact with to have to come in and, and deal with your company on a day-to-day basis. That, that means things didn't work and I'm trying to salvage it. Um, so that's my general thought. I, I want the company to be creative and, and move in a direction and, and advise and provide bumpers where appropriate. David, along that vein, um, you know, given that, that venture capital is a bit of a, a statistical game and mm-hmm. you're going to have some losses, you know, one of my favorite diligence questions for venture capitalists is, you know, I want to ask them to introduce me to a CEO or founder that they fired or the business flamed out, and I want to interview that that CEO or founder and, and understand how they handled the situation. Can yeah. you can you share with us an experience that didn't work out and and how you handled that situation? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so so a couple come to mind, but they're they're not appropriate to share. But uh, in a general way, 
uh, my, my background was in uh, originally in the early 2000s was uh, managing long short equity portfolios. We ran about $100 million long short and uh, it was done systematically and through algorithms that were developed. Every day you make wrong bets and every day you have to deal with that and figure it out uh, whether you made a mistake, whether your process was wrong and uh, dealing with that daily failure uh, that constantly is that feedback loop that comes at you day after day, I think changes the way that you interact and view um, uh, maybe failures or um, negative events. Uh, and it kind of gets to one of the things that I, I passionately uh, find or I find intellectually stimulating is uh, decision making and uncertainty. And I think you become just by that feedback loop that I uh, went through 2006 to 2013, the financial crisis and, and volatility, um, is you realize that the quality of decisions, uh, th there's, there's skill and luck to every decision that's made and, and in different ratios. But the quality of a decision is not based on the outcome. It's based on the process that got you there. So blaming or um, uh, those types of activities isn't necessarily helpful. Did we do? Did we use a process that we liked, that we're happy with, and did it result in negative consequences? Uh, uh, that that's okay. It it happens. Um, even if you if you have a coin that you know is going to be seventy five percent of the time heads, it's going to come up tails twenty five percent of the time. It doesn't made you, mean you made a bad bet or somebody screwed up. It just means that that's the way it goes sometimes. Yep. So what? What elements of the decision-making process uh, guide you on a daily basis? Yeah, there's a there's a great book. It's called Skill and, or, or the Success Equation, and it discusses skill versus luck. It's one that influenced me many years ago. And um, so I think realizing that outcomes have a component of both and attributing a lot of success oftentimes comes from getting run over by luck. And so um, I think deciding what that ratio is and figuring out what factors, what they are. You, you discussed, Evan, about programmers uh, and, and, or software engineers and a, a subject matter expert and how that, that communication breaks down. I think one of the bigger components is the subject matter expert doesn't necessarily realize all of the little teeny tiny factors that lead to their expertise. And it takes yep. a lot. And, and whereas the, the software engineer is just putting those series of call it if then statements together to then create the outcome of the algorithm. And yep. uh, I, I think breaking pieces down, breaking factor or the factors into smaller pieces and weighting those and thinking diligently about what those are, I think is very important. And then um, moving forward and, and weighting those in terms of probability thinking and what the outcome might be and realizing that there are a dis there is a distribution of what the outcomes will be in the future. No, no single outcome is guaranteed. And even that, that makes you realize that that even the past, uh, the outcomes of the past are no certain, uh, there, there are multiple past potential outcomes that could have happened. So even using historical references is not always the, the best um, path forward. So those are kind of where I sit and then I put it all together in terms of uh, these factors are relevant and this is the decision that we're gonna make. But it's, it's, it's a slow and tedious process. So expanding on that, you know, talking about uncertainty and how to make decisions in light of uncertainty. How are you thinking about the macro right now for oil and gas? A lot of people think that, that you know, this is the death knell for, 
for oil and gas. And then others, you know, I tend to be more in the camp of, you know, this is a generational opportunity. But uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, why you think this might be an opportunity and, and where do you think the macro is at and where do you think it's going? I mean, there's tremendous uncertainty there, and, and I've, I'm sure you've broken the problem down, and I'd, I'd love to hear your articulation of, of, of where you think we're at and where you think we're headed. Sure. Uh, as far as oil is concerned, I think the disruption is temporary, so the demand disruption is very temporary in terms of you know three months, a year, whatever it is. That, that's a very temporary uh, disruption. I think the reaction to that that demand, I'm sorry, the demand destruction and thus the excess supply is to shut in wells. You start with the stripper wells, you concrete those in, they make up 10 to 20% of US production, depending on where you look. Those will never be drilled again because they're non-economical. They're producing 10 barrels a day. Uh, you're never going to go back into them. And then you start shutting in horizontal production. And that has the potential to damage reservoir. You get water, pressure, depressurization, whatever it might be. And maybe those aren't economical to ever go back into again. Or if you do, they certainly have some damage to them. So uh, the supply disruption is longer term than the demand disruption. I think if you look globally, we've delivered roughly excess energy to 2 billion people on the planet. We've delivered some energy to another 2 billion, and then we've delivered virtually no energy to roughly 2 to 3 billion people. And all of those people, call it 6 billion people, want what we have on a daily basis. To me, energy is a, is a growth industry, and that long-term growth uh, trajectory uh, is, is stable and um, uh, is, a, is an issue that we have to deal with as a global society. Um, the supply disruptions, uh, the, so, so, so the point is, is that demand disruptions are temporary, supply, di supply disruptions could be permanent, and the demand curve uh, on a long-term basis is uh, uh, upwards and to the left, and this is a temporary gyration around that. As far as energy tech, this is, the, this is a J curve. Uh, I think that there is a, a huge opportunity over the next three to four years to found companies, invest in companies that will uh, now be vital to the production of energy domestically and internationally. These companies, um, the barriers to entry, uh, the storm has come through and knocked down many of those walls. Um, if you think about oil and gas companies just working remotely, there were maybe two, three people that said uh, in the company that said, no, we're, no one can work remotely. That, that, that barrier has now completely shifted and new tools are going to be there um, uh, uh, be created or be used to allow for that dispersed workforce. And, and that's something that, that I always thought of with your company, an ability to recruit and manage people on, on a remote basis. You're, you're very good at that. So, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's even accelerated some of my thinking along those lines. You know, um, I, I, almost, I almost have no appetite uh, to have a, a physical presence going forward. Um, you know, we're operating just as effectively remotely. And, um, you know, if I could get out of my lease and, and, and not have an office, I'd, I would seriously consider it. Um, interesting. So along that, that those same lines, you know, I've, I've, I've worked to recruit people from all over the country just to get the skill sets that we need in order to, to build the products that we're building. Um, what's your pitch to somebody in, in the West coast or the, the East coast that, that may have kind of a negative view of the industry or may view it as a dying industry. 
what would be your pitch to to recruit talent to the space that is that is outside of of the oil and gas sector? Yeah, I, I think um, I think it circles back to something we 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 hit on briefly earlier in the conversation, and it's that if you want to change and affect change, you need to do it from the inside, not from the outside. And one of the best ways to do that is to come into this sector and uh, make it better. Um, and I, th- I think that's one. The other is um, uh, there's a great opportunity here. And uh, I think Denver is positioning itself well to be the energy technology capital of the U.S. And so you get to move to Denver if you do this. And I think that's a great sales pitch. <laughs> yeah. Totally. What uh so, I mean, I, the one thing that comes to mind too for me is how much of this innovation is going to come from an R&D department of some billion dollar corporation versus, you know, uh, entrepreneurs like Evan. Because I think about um, entrepreneurship in the tech space um, in, in other industries, and it seems like adoption's a lot. And maybe I'm just, I don't have enough knowledge to make this claim, but it seems like it's easier to move into other spaces as an entrepreneur, uh, working with uh, other sectors, uh, whereas in oil and gas, it seems like there's a huge barrier to entry. And I wonder, you know, is, is that changed the dynamics of where the tech is ultimately going to come from? I think it depends uh, on the specific tech, but at a macro level, a vast majority is not going to be developed at large E&P uh, companies, and there's there's a reason for that. One is that just it's it's hard for big companies to be um, uh, technology focused. That's why they they are, are, are disruptive focused. Um, and the other is E&P engineers in particular are focused on zero risk. They want to get the um, the decision making to as close to zero as possible. Startups and uh, new technologies are more of a fail fast. Uh, adopt or I'm sorry, adapt to those failures, take it as a feedback loop and mm-hmm. adjust their positioning. So I think those cultural issues um, are uh, ingrained and they should be at EMP companies, um, whereas the startup and, and the more digital technology companies uh, are going to uh, uh, do not fit in that. And to be successful there, they, they do not fit into that mantra of, uh, of zero risk. So how do you both deal with the human element then of the decision-making process? Because there's obviously a huge data-driven element to this. What is the market demand? You know, how effective is our product in solving uh, different um, problems within an organization? But then a big piece of it too, obviously, is, is the team because they have to be able to fail and learn from those failures quickly, which seems like kind of a rare human skill set. So when you guys are looking at people um, either for your own team or for teams to invest in, um, how do you run that evaluation on people? Evan, that's all you, bro. Yeah, I, I think it's. Uh, I, I think it starts with culture, and 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 I'll share, um, you know, an experience and, and be a little bit vulnerable here. You know, I, you know, it, I, I think that you know, in, earlier on in my career. Um, I think I, 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 I perpetuated a culture that, that demanded perfection. Um, and it's, that stifles creativity. It stifles innovation. When you have uh, brilliant engineers that, that 
have creative ways to solve problems and, and innovate and create unique solutions. You want to be part of the, that, you know, that, that, that product journey earlier on in the process so that you can iterate alongside them. And when you create a culture that, 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 that demands perfection, your team is more likely to wait until they believe it's right or it's perfect to bring it to you. And at that point, you're way too far down the road to, uh, to provide meaningful feedback and to course correct. And so, you know, the danger that you run into by demanding perfection is, is that, um, it, it's costly. You get too far down the road before you realize that, that, uh, you needed to make some iterations or you have some feedback to offer. So the more that you can embrace and, and welcome failure, I think the, the better off you are in the long run because, um, people are less afraid to bring something to you earlier on in the process. Um, and so, um, I would say that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that, that you screen for necessarily. I mean, you can ask, there are interview questions that, that you can provide that gives you some insight as to, you know, uh, what kind of personality types are out there, um, and, and whether or not, you know, they are perfectionists and fearful of failure. I mean, you can vet that in an interview process, but I think culture is most important in terms of reinforcing an environment where, you know, you can definitely go on, you know, you can definitely go off intuition, come up with a creative idea or solution that you see, innovate and bring it to the team early on and, 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 and that be super well received as opposed to, you know, um, receiving a ton of, of fire because, you know, you didn't think through certain things. Um, so you, you definitely want to, you know, to, to support that culture of innovation and failure. Yeah. And I, I've had the chance to see that on your team. And I, it, even the other day I was talking to one of your developers and he was getting very giddy and excited over an idea that he was having. And he, he, I could see that he had the freedom to think that way. And I think that is really a unique leadership ability to ha have your uh, team, uh, you know, sense that freedom for themselves to where they can go down that exploration journey. So, but that for me, you know, David, how, how do you look at a team then, you know, for qualities of a leader like Evan um, and, you know, what he brings to the table, not just from, you know, an ROI, IRR perspective, but also from a leadership perspective? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, reading people is a very difficult and imprecise science. In fact, we're, we're probably all bad at it, even though we maybe think that that we're good at it. I, I, I don't know. I'm reminded of like Neville Chamberlain coming back, peace in our time from visiting with Hitler and that he's a great guy. But the point of that story is that we, we just read people poorly. Um, and so I try to break it down into a couple of factors and realize that uh, different people will create different teams that will succeed in different ways. And so it's not a single person. And then I look for certain factors, um, like um, uh, maybe it's uh, certain past successes or failures, um, certain background components, uh, things that they studied. Um, and then it just comes down to, uh, I, I, I think it's uh, more of a guess and check and then, and then helping guide them uh, uh, and, and figuring out where their weaknesses might be to help guide them and improve those. You know, that's really an interesting point. 
And you get a lot of these self-help books that tell you what a perfect team looks like. But I think it's interesting to consider all the different blends of personalities that can come together to be successful and how those don't always look the same. Um, So looks like we're kind of getting towards the end of our time together and just wanted to open up the floor real quick and see if there's anything else either one of you really wants to cover uh, while we're on the show. Yeah, I had a question for you. How, um, you've been good at recruitment um, from a, a, a smaller town uh, in the grand scheme of things. How, can you maybe address that and some of your thoughts as your, your process has evolved and your uh, experience has evolved over these years? Because I, if I recall, you told me that you were kind of very, hey, we all got to be in the office at the beginning, and then and then realizing that th- there was a there was an evolution from that. Yeah, absolutely. So so and, and there are a lot of themes that we could discuss in terms of you know what I've learned along the way and how I've adjusted. Um, you know the you know just talking about a culture, you know uh, reinforcing a culture that embraces failure is one of them. Um, with respect to recruitment, um, so I'm a, a big believer in in just finding the best people to work with, regardless of where they're located. Um, I, I believe that that uh, that is more important than getting hung up on on where they're located. I personally very much thrive off of the energy of having everybody in the same office. Um, there is there is an intangible there that is that is hard to quantify, but it is exciting to be going from office to office and talking about what we're doing and, and working through various problems. And and it's also uh, there's a human element there that you know part of my job is is to walk the floors and 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 talk you know top to bottom to our team. And just check in with them, you know, um, you know, and, and build a relationship with our folks. And, and that gets harder to do, you know, as you get bigger. But I think it's really important. I think I think people want to feel seen. They want to feel supported. And, um, you know, I think CEOs tend to underestimate, um, you know, there was an there was an article in the Atlantic about, you know, the, the CEO's whisper is a yell. Um, I think CEOs tend to underestimate just what kind of impact they can have on the organization, both good and bad, based off of, you know, how they carry themselves in the office. And uh, it's hard to create that kind of energy remotely. So I would say that my, you know, the way I prioritize first and foremost is to find the best talent, regardless of where they're located. But secondly, I, I do tend to, to want to have the team in one location. It's just not possible given what we're trying to accomplish. If we were an upstream oil and gas company, I would, I would believe that we could do that. But as a technology company, I feel like, you know, for the problems that we're trying to solve, we need uh, product managers that are located in, in cities that tend to build a lot more technology than Oklahoma City. We need software engineers that are working on problems that, that tend to be in areas that, you know, I mean, I mean, engineers can, can pretty much be anywhere they want to live these days um, if, if you're recruiting top talent. And so, uh, and then over the years, as we've become more remote, you know, I, we have found ways to, 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 to be more effective as a team. And, and I no longer, you know, closely, you know, um, uh, you, you know, closely hold the belief that we all have to be in one space. Um, it, I would still prefer it, but, but, but it's, it's not as big a trade-off as I imagined when I first started building the business. 
And so today I would say that, that we are, you know, completely remote. We have to be through COVID, but, but, um, uh, you know, even, you know, post COVID here, as I mentioned earlier, I don't know that I want to go back to a brick and mortar. I don't know that, that it's necessary. I don't know that I want that additional burn on the business. Um, and so, you know, I've kind of moved the, you know, completely the other direction. Is there anything in energy tech, Evan, that you see like uh, 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 an underserved opportunity that, oh, someone, someone should really go after that? You got any, got any thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first and foremost, I think that, um, I think, you know, you know, from the capital to the, uh, to the talent and everything in between, um, there, there's a lot that, that can be done. Um, you know, for example, I was having a discussion with one of my board members recently about what, what, what appears to be a bifurcation between SaaS businesses and DAS businesses. DAS is not a term that has been used all that widely until here recently. There are more and more data companies being created, and those businesses are different than SaaS companies, yet I'm still running into venture capitalists that kind of lump them into SaaS. Um, and, and so, you know, as, as data and technology, um, you know, evolve, um, you know, uh, energy tech, you know, in my opinion, has historically been a laggard. And um, I think that, that investors uh, as a whole can, 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 can evolve, um, you know, and, and become more mature as, as venture capitalists looking at, you know, SaaS and, and DAS businesses. I also th- think you, the, the talent is evolving. I think that historically you are grabbing subject matter experts and trying to convert them into product managers, um, as opposed to grabbing product managers that come from technology and applying them to oil and gas. And you did that because you wanted that subject matter expertise. And, 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 um, and so, you know, it, the path of least resistance was trying to coach up somebody that knew a lot about some area within oil and gas to become a product manager, which is a challenge. Um, and so, you know, that's one area where I think there's opportunity for energy tech to evolve is just the talent I think is starting to mature. And I think uh, alongside that, I think the venture capitalists are maturing as well in terms of um, solutions and, and, and technology. I think that, you know, you know, I'm a big believer that, that adoption, adoption is the main thing that, that I look at uh, within the sector, within energy tech. I think that um, the two things that drive adoption are, in my opinion, are, are success, where somebody utilizes technology in a new way and has outsized returns. And competitors look at that and think, wow, you know, we need to be following along or necessity. And, and we're looking at a scenario right now where there's a lot of necessity. G&A is getting squeezed. We've got to be more efficient. We've got to find new ways to do things. And that's really driving a lot of innovation and that's really driving adoption. It's, it's, it's required. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing for energy tech in terms of where the opportunities are. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in the back office space. Um, you know, I, I think that there, there are uh, a lot of opportunities. You know, I think, you know, I love talking about how to apply machine learning to data and how to apply, you know, um, some cutting edge technology to the space. 
but when I look at some of the big EMP companies, there are more um, uh, there are more there are more traditional and foundational problems than I think what we realize. I think there's still a lot of images that are in paper. Um, yeah. There's still there's still a lot of data that's not standardized and normalized. I think companies wrestle with how to really create value with technology. Any emerging tech company better really lock down their value proposition because I think that companies are, have this sentiment, we already have lots of data and we don't know what to do with it. And so I think, um, and I also think that, you know, one of the things that I underestimated as a first time founder early on is I felt like if I created the data and created the products that the market would go to town with all these different ideas of how to utilize the product to do various things with the data, the more that you can, you can give your customers uh, a button to click to perform a workflow or to, to create an insight, the better, the, the, the more you can, the more heavy lifting that you can do for the market, particularly this market, the better, because they're, they're very much approaching technology with, with the mindset that we've already got lots of technology. We already got lots of data and we're struggling how to best leverage it. And so you really need to be developing solutions that do the heavy lifting for them. Well, I think that was very insightful for anyone who wants to become a founder of a company. Thanks. Um, Evan, you know, just to that point though, and I think I kind of have one more question to follow up on that. Um, what, uh, how do you get past the tight hole, you know, mentality of, of companies and their data and the integrity of their data? I think that that's a, that, that's a tough barrier. Um, I, you know, a, a lot of companies have really great proprietary information um, and they view it as a competitive advantage. And so they are reluctant. I, I saw this when a lot of the West Coast startups were coming into the space about 10 years ago. They had, they, they had um, you know, very strong engineering teams uh, that could do predictive analytics and all sorts of data science, uh, you know, provided that they were given the data. And I think they underestimated how difficult it would be to get that proprietary data. And in addition to that, the, the market, the, our, our industry was skeptical as to what they were going to be learning with that data and, and, and what risk was uh, associated with utilizing those cloud-based products in terms of the derivatives of the data that could be created or the machine learning, you know, the machine learning models that could be trained and potentially sold to their competitors. And so I think, you know, it is, it is a, a, a chasm that you have to, um, you have to think carefully about when you're wanting to work with a company's proprietary information. I think the more you can take public information as a, a as a example of what you're trying to do, um, and then tie that to a value proposition, the more compelling the value proposition is, the more likely you are to get proprietary information, um, and the more that you can do to uh, to 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 architect your solution so that it can run behind a firewall, so that it can be isolated. To give comfort, companies comfort that you know, you know, the more you can answer two security questions, I think the the better off you are in, in actually getting your hands on some proprietary information. Um, I, I do think that companies, energy to, or energy companies, are 
are, um, are, are increasingly working with other companies um, with the proprietary data. So um, I think I think the industry is getting a little bit more comfortable with the idea, but but the, you're still getting a lot of questions. Yeah, and I, I know you're doing you you're essentially doing that at Osberg, right? With uh, taking public records and public data points, and and then using that to enter the company. At least an oil and gas lease being a great example of something that exists both internally and externally uh, in public records that you can give a demonstration against their own data set, um, but without having to, you know, get inside uh, their, their system. Yeah, but we are starting to work more with companies' proprietary information. So I'll give you a, a workflow example. So um, one of the things that, that we've been able to do is, is, is take some regulatory information and courthouse records and structured data in order to find open rights or obligations that are in breach uh, to identify open opportunities at, at the horizontal level. But in order to, in order for that workflow to be accurate, we, we really need to work with a, a customer on, you know, what are the, you know, tops information, for example, like, like, you know, helping us understanding, understand the geology a little bit. It's not till you can show some value that you can have that conversation you have to sh you have to kind of you know you can take public data and you can provide kind of an mvp of 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 what the output would look like and once you can show that value proposition and and, and show that it's compelling then companies are are far more willing to to provide you with their proprietary data to make the workflow all the more you know all the all, all the more valuable Um, so I, for either of you, are you guys open to having people reach out to you? Um, and if so, is there specific types of people you're looking to connect with right now to help you in your ventures? Yeah, I'm, I'm always open to new connections. I, I can be found on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find my website um, and, and you know, reach out to you, Adam, and, and get my email. Happy, happy to connect to people. Great. Same here. Always open to talking to folks. All right. Well, thanks guys for coming on the show today. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion and I hope we can do this again soon. Adam enjoyed it. Thank thanks for listening to the show. The next podcast is a really interesting one. We're sitting down with Ian Cunningham, who's the founder and CEO of Wave9 to discuss his business and the really cool product that he has to help monitor and uh, boost productivity of conventional wells. Ian's also really integrated process into his platform, which I think gives him a pretty competitive edge. And then him as an individual, he's one of those guys that is a good listener. And I think you can really see how important that is to his business and his ability to bring in these new technologies that people might be apprehensive in putting on their equipment to get them to a place where they're comfortable and can see the value. If you're out there right now hustling a new product or service, I think you can learn a lot from Ian's approach. As always, if you have any recommendations for future guests on the show, please visit us on our website at oilintel.com. 
And finally, if you're a professional or part of an organization that's looking to create some change within the business, but looking for external help, Oil Intel is here to connect you with the right people. You can send me personally an email at adam at oilintel.com. That's adam at oilintel.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and frack on.